Welcome to another episode of the Cycling Tips Nerd Alert podcast. I'm your host, James Huang, together with Australian tech editor, Dave Rome. Hi, Dave. Hey. How's it going today? Yeah, I'm well. How are you doing? Well, you know, all things considered, could be better. Uh, we're not going to talk about that, though. We're going to talk about something, um, well, certainly less substantial, let's put it that way, because if you're listening to this podcast, there's a very good possibility that you ride bikes. And there is also a possibility that in the last year or so, you maybe have been interested in buying a bike. The only problem with that, however, is basically fueled by the COVID pandemic and the impetus that seemingly everyone has all of a sudden to ride bikes and buy new bikes. Very likely, the bike that you have been interested in buying, you can't buy because someone else has already bought it. So what that means is right now we are seeing unprecedented demand for all things bicycle related at the moment, and also an unprecedented lack of supply. Now to talk about sort of the sources of all this stuff and kind of where, you know, how we got to this point and, you know, sort of where we're going to, where we're going and, you know, what we can, if anything, do about it. Dave, you dialed up a friend of yours to kind of pick his brain as far as you know, sort of, you know, the inner workings of what this, what this is all about, right? So who'd you talk to? I spoke to another Dave. So Dave Musgrove, uh, he's based in Sydney, not too far from me. And, and basically he, he works deep in the industry. So he's a bike designer. Uh, specifically, he works for Bikes Online, which are the US and Australian, I guess, direct sellers, distributor, marketers uh, for Polygon bikes. Uh, so yeah, they, they basically work directly with Polygon which is an Indonesian-based bicycle manufacturer. Uh, and yeah, so he, he's the brand manager for Polygon across North America and Oceania, uh, and he's also still involved in the design of quite a few bikes as well. So for those in Australia, they might uh, might know some of Dave's previous work. He's He was the person behind Grove Bikes, which is a pretty cool gravel bike. He was also responsible for uh, basically rebirthing cell bikes where, um, yeah, they basically had a, a range of high, higher end carbon bikes and some pretty decent alloy bikes. And that, that was all his work. Right. So in other words, uh, Dave Musgrove is very likely not a name that you have heard in casual conversation about bikes, but there's a good chance that, you know, he has had a hand in designing a bike that you may have ridden or looked at. Uh, at the very least, he's very well informed as far as how a lot of things happen in the production side of things behind the scenes. So let's take a listen to your conversation with Dave, and then we will discuss this on the other side. Welcome to the podcast, Dave. Thanks, Dave. Pleasure to be here. So I guess before we dive into the problems, like obviously this hasn't all been bad. COVID hasn't been uh, a terrible thing for the cycling industry. We've seen a boom, uh, which is part of the reason why we're we're in these supply issues. But what sort of positive trends have you seen over the last twelve months? Well, from from my side personally, I think one of the most positive things is I've just seen a lot more people on bikes. Uh, so, yeah, in in Sydney, you know, it hasn't exactly been a really bike centric city, and so particularly you know during the first lockdown that we had here, just. When, when I did get out of the house and just seeing families on bikes everywhere. And, and that was a really positive thing. So seeing kids out on bikes, families on bikes, parents getting out there with their kids, which they haven't done normally, that's, that's really, really positive. I think that's something that we're going to see a real benefit throughout society. Obviously, to support that, people have bought new bikes. 
So we've seen that both in Australia and in the US. Uh, it was quite fortunate timing in the US from, from our business side of things. So we've been trading there for about 20 months now. And it's, yeah, you know, coincided. We, we kind of just got our you know, feet on the ground and, and sorting things out. And then the, the boom just happened for us. So, uh, you know, we've been selling a lot of bikes. I think that Polygon being priced at, you know, definitely, you know, well positioned at the value end of the market. It's resulted in, uh, you know, a lot of uptake from those new cyclists coming into the sport. And so, yeah, it's been, it's been amazing. It's, it's definitely had its challenges because everything's changed. You know, our business has grown a lot. So, yeah, there's a lot of challenges along the way. But fortunately, uh, we've been able to get a lot of bikes, you know, under, under new riders, which is, is quite nice. Speaking, speaking of that, like what kind of supply issues are you starting to see? Because uh, obviously the, the word out there is that bikes are impossible to find right now and that parts and frames and you know, just brands in general just can't get enough of this stuff and that everything's backed up. What, what's your experience here? Yeah, supply of, of a whole lot of different parts is a challenge. So if we consider, you know, back pre-COVID days, lead times for, for different, different components on the bikes um, may have been as short as 30 to 45 days. And uh, typically it would be around three or four months to, you know, from you place your order to you get the shipment. Being in Indonesia, a lot of those parts were coming from Taiwan or China, so there would be a bit of extra shipping delay, whereas a lot of the Taiwanese factories, for example, are, are really just-in-time manufacturing. So Polygon's always been in the position of, of warehousing a fair bit of uh, parts inventory, which, which has helped us out significantly during this time where lead times are blown out. And so you'd order those parts, but obviously most of your development of the bike was already done when you had to place your orders for the parts because assuming you were doing a bit of a revision of an existing design that development period may be about six to 12 months if it was a, a design fresh from from scratch it might be say a 12 to 18 month development period once your bike's developed you, you're pretty ready to you know get all your orders from everyone and and get the thing in production the whole thing has been flipped around now because lead times are going out for these components on the bikes 12 to 24 months. And they were before three months, roughly. Yeah, I mean, SRAM parts for almost across the board were 30 to 45 days. Right, okay. Now, you, you really can't get any suspension fork on the market in less than 12 months. Right, wow. So it's gone from effectively just in time to a year. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, and, and yeah, there's a lot of parts that make up a bike as well. So, if your axle has a 24 month lead time, well, that's when your bike can get produced or you try to find a different axle. Saddles, good luck getting a saddle from anyone in less than a year. And I, I don't know how your riding experience goes, but trying to sell a bike without a saddle is <laughs> a bit off putting for some customers. Yeah. Yeah. It's one, it's, Pretty much everything on a bike is a must-have, but yeah, a bike without a saddle is, is, is not going to go very far. Yeah, it's a bit frustrating, right? Because we know that probably only 50% of people are going to be happy with a stock saddle. 
So you know half the time it's a throwaway item, but you, you need that thing on there. <laughs> it's always a joke of like, can't we just send it without the saddle? But no. <laughs> and so, you know, everything's got to line up. And so there'll always be this point of like, well, that part's the longest part. Okay, let's try to change it. And so there is a lot of chopping and changing of spec mm-hmm. and, and changing of vendors. And then it's all about these relationships with a vendor. But with the, the parts lead time being that long, it actually means that the, the development's kind of flipped around now. If you want to develop a new product, well, you need to know that you're going to be able to buy those parts and have it in market in two years' time. So you've actually got to place your parts orders and then you've got kind of time up your sleeve to design the bike. <laughs> so you're, you're kind of picking the parts and then design the bike around the parts you can get. Yeah, but, and then it's a bit challenging, especially if you get to, you know, I mean, group sets are one thing that's not too bad, right? But if you get to dual suspension bikes where you kind of got to know your shock tune mm-hmm. to place the order that you might get, you know, well over a year away. Yeah, yeah. Okay. so it's, it, it's definitely a, a challenging um, situation there. And what it means is if, if people aren't planning well ahead of time, mm. you, you're going to miss pretty core model ranges and for, for quite a period. And I think the other thing we'll see is just that the safe option is to just not design something new and just keep reordering. Yeah. And that's a bit different to how our industry has traditionally worked, right? Where you're getting new standards all the time. (laughs) Yeah. So like from a consumer point of view, I mean, while they might not be able to buy the thing, at least it's perhaps their current bike might not be so outdated as I guess pre-COVID. Is that that kind of what you're alluding to there? Yeah, for sure. So we're seeing that um, and, you know, having a bit of scope into what other brands are doing as well. Uh, a lot of brands are, for sure, they're working on some new developments, but if you can't get the new parts for a long time, yeah. I mean, perhaps it'll be a, a frame, but with the same parts on there, a revised frame. But uh, there'll, there'll be a lot of bikes that if they're not, if there's not a problem with them, they're going to keep coming out like they are, maybe with a new liquor color on there. Yeah, right. And the sales are so good at the moment that there's no real reason not to do that either, right? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And I think it's a bit more sustainable for, uh, obviously, for a traditional distribution model that people, you know, if they can get stock, it's not going to be obsolete. And, you know, the the bike shops don't need to clear stuff out as much. So there's probably less discounting going on. It means that the customers probably can't get as good a clear out deals and, and whatnot. But I think there's an upside for everyone there if they can get hold of something yeah right so i mean polygons are is a relatively large player in the market i mean they're 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 absolutely growing there they're becoming a a more dominant player by the day but what about the the smaller brands in in this in this uh sort of amongst these issues you know polygon surely the the scale that polygon has pulls some weight in terms of being able to get some supply from from manufacturers is is there would you say it's only becoming more difficult for the smaller brands to play in this space right now? Yeah, I'd say it is, it is definitely going to be challenging for smaller brands. Part of it is, is obviously the supply of the parts. So, you know, if someone wants to offer SRAM or Shimano, you know, money and place the order for the parts, um, they will be, you know, prioritized in a list, obviously, there. But typically, it'll, it'll come in first in best dressed. However, that there is also the balance of production capacity. So that comes down to who's going to make your frames and how much 
volume are they going to let you take on and then who's going to you know paint and assemble the bikes and things like that so that's where different assemblers or manufacturers have have different capacity in terms of how much they control in-house there's been some um you know big big manufacturers i've worked with in the past who um you know particularly china based where they've had their own own foundries so they've been you know casting their own aluminium billets so they and then obviously extruding all their tubing doing hydroforming everything in-house right and so they have a lot of control there whereas if you're buying tubing from someone else well even if you've you've got the best relationship with shimano and you've got all the stuff coming in if you can't get your tubes you really can't make a bike yeah and so yeah that's where uh the smaller brands it, it will definitely be a challenge in terms of if their existing partners can can manufacture for them or if they're getting squashed out by a, a bigger brand although there's heaps of demand that that supply challenges makes it um that pretty tricky time ahead yeah okay so i guess for a lot of listeners then when they think of a bike being built they probably just think you know maybe giant makes the frame and then piece together the parts and then put it in a box and then ship it out. Um, but that's probably not really the case with a lot of, a lot of the brands in the industry, right? They're every, uh, there's, there's kind of a, a different company involved in every stage of the manufacturing. Is that, would you agree? Like, is that, is that sort of how these things come together? It depends on, on the company. So, uh, yeah, some have a lot of, of the stages in house. Uh, there are a lot of assembler factories who all they do is, is paint and assemble. So they'll get raw frames from a whole bunch of different frame makers and then they've got to paint them, they organise all the parts. Um, smaller brands typically will be ordering their parts through the assembler, whereas the bigger brands will be placing those orders directly with the, the component manufacturer and you know, they'll just simply be shipped out to that assembler. So yeah, the, the challenge is how much control does each have um, and, and the brand how much leverage they have over that each step. And so that's where a company like Polygon has uh, very good control because they're obviously making a lot of their frames, you know, the majority of their frames in-house. However, they're, they're not making their own tubing. So that's a, the next step up the line is, okay, but the tubing vendors, Polygon are investing there on, you know, having more control over the supply from the tubing side of things and forging parts, things like that. So that, yeah, there can just be a bit more consistency and, and certainty of supply there. Yeah, interesting. What about, I guess, brands that are, are really at the, the peak of their allowed production with, with some of their suppliers and some of their, their vendors, I guess? Like, what are their options there in terms of, you know, if, if their sales have all of a sudden doubled but their production has not changed from, from a year ago, what's, what, where do you go from there? Is it just they have to sell half as much as, you know, is, is demand just double what the supply is or is there an answer there? Yeah, I, I think the, you know, one bottleneck has probably been, um, you know, particularly group sets, obviously. So um, from, from my somewhat limited understanding, Shimano is not dramatically increasing production capacity because, you know, there likely may be an end to this bubble. Well, so, well, yeah, I mean, that, to give context to that, like uh, outside of the bike industry, I believe the automotive industry is in a similar place where um, a lot of, dra- uh, especially Japanese companies are, are quite traditional in their, in their growth. They, they see 
excessive growth as as a risk, not a not a you know um, not an opportunity necessarily. They they know that you know some of these booms don't always exist, and if you've greatly invested in your your production expansion, then it could bite you. So I guess that's that's perhaps what we're what you're what you're talking about there, which is yeah, exactly. They're, they're yeah, very absolutely. adverse to to um, excessive growth. Yeah, and yeah, it's it's a risk, obviously, and particularly with with a company like Shimano who who do most of their manufacturing in house. You can't scale down a lot of that that manufacturing capacity. So that means that the, the supply is is only only so much. So for the bigger brands. They can only only grow as much as the the production capacity allows, cash flow and all those things you know involved there. So then, what I think a lot of those bigger brands are doing is thinking, okay, well we need to prioritize certain markets. So that's where I think what we're seeing in Australia is certain brands that there's just very little supply. Because chances are some of those brands might prioritize, for example, North America and all the European markets. And so little old Australia maybe doesn't get as many containers coming our way. And the forever the battler. Yeah. <laughs> but that's that's where, you know, once again, we're in a fortunate position with with Polygon because we we have control there. Australia has been the biggest market outside of Indonesia for Polygon and obviously the US is, you know. 10 times the market size of Australia. So, yeah, that's um, just allowed us to prioritise supply. And so it's put us in a good position relative to some of the other brands. Yeah. One of the things I wanted to ask you is uh, you've done some work with designing bikes for Aldi in Australia, um, the the supermarket chain that uh, tend to be extremely price competitive and and do some pretty big numbers when they do um cycling goods so uh they, they'll do um they'll bring in just sort of seasonal drops i guess they'll 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 it's part of their uh i don't know what you'd call it their their yeah, weekly sales yeah, their special buys <laughs> their special buys they, yeah. they'll have um cycling products you know I, I guess what every quarter almost um and yeah you've been designing the bikes for them lately what's what's happening with that amongst all these supply issues like how do you go about designing and delivering a a one-off bike like that into the market yeah it's it's challenging for for aldi and and so to be frank it's it's definitely slipped down the priority scale for us particularly with the the growth we've been experiencing in the u.s market so the challenge with the aldi orders is they're really big orders in, in one hit. You know, they, they do many, many bikes spread across their 500 plus stores um, and it's all sold in a week in theory. So, uh, you know, the margins are small and everything needs to be lined up and work really well for it to function. And it's not really conducive to 20 month lead times. Yeah. So, of course, the the buyers at Aldi, uh, you know, they've got to make sure that their their sewing machines and their lawnmowers and everything like that. They're, they're probably in a similar boat with a lot of these things, but with the bike industry, the lead times blowing out so much has has kind of meant that it's yeah, it's a logistical nightmare really to to even broach the the possibility to right to focus on getting bikes, particularly new developments and things like that, in through Aldi. Interesting. So I guess like Audi, they're 
they'd be one of the most competitive on price as far as a bike goes, which may or may not impact competition as well in terms of pricing. You know, I guess in the past, some of their bikes or, or bikes sold by them and their competitors would help drive down prices from other brands trying to be competitive. Do you think all of this, I guess, uh, you know, demand outweighing supply and um, the, the fact that some of these low cost players can't even get product into the country or, or into the market, do you think this is helping to drive up bike prices? Or is it just a, a sort of like a happy coincidence? Well, Aldi was effectively, you know, the biggest competitor for bikes online in Australia, right? Right. Um, you know, offering somewhat similar products and, and the, the product we sold through Aldi was sold a lot cheaper. But because they were sold out in a week or two, it, it didn't really, I mean, yeah, it impacted the comparable single model in our entire lineup for a week or two, but once it was sold out, it was gone. Yeah, okay. And what we would notice is that a lot of those those Aldi bike purchases, they're, they're first-time bike buyers or just getting back into it. It gets them into, into the sport, into the activity, into you know, commuting by bike or, or whatever the, the discipline of bike is, and, and then those people come and, you know, want to upgrade a bike a bit later and so they go into their bike shop or, or they come to us and they buy another bike um, down the track or accessorize it and things like that. So I don't think overall it really had a, a negative impact on sales as it was. Yeah. And so I think that, uh, yeah, I mean, there, there will be some, some impact of, of having Audi selling bikes or not, uh, but it's, it's not huge either way. Yeah. Yeah. But I guess a point that I, I took from what you just said there is we're going through this boom and a whole new wave of people are finding bikes and, and taking up cycling. But at the moment, perhaps the previous entry point into cycling and the most price, I guess the most price sensitive group when it comes to buying a bike are probably the ones struggling the most to find a bike right now. Yeah, that's, that's fair to say. Yeah, for sure. And so I think yeah, if, you've, if you've walked into any bike shop in, in the past 12 months, you, there's not many bikes under $1,000 yeah. in there. And I think that there's probably a, quite a, a spike we've seen in the secondhand market. And so people who you know, traditionally haven't been you know, able to walk into a, a traditional bike shop and, and buy the entry-level bike there, yeah, they've you know, been looking at secondhand, things like that. Uh, but yeah, there's definitely a, a challenge of supply there. Yeah, okay. Which I guess the trade-off is in, in a lot of cases, what I've seen firsthand is uh, people that wanted to spend $500 on their first bike are being forced to spend $1,000, which... They get a better experience. They get a better experience. <laughs> they, yeah, I mean, they're just, chances are, you know, they're more invested in the sport now. So they're going to want to get better value out of that product, out of that purchase. And, and yeah, a $1,000 bike is a far more enjoyable experience than a $500 bike. Yeah, and so, a lot of those customers who were spending 500 bucks on, on a bike, you know, yeah. they're, they're now not spending their two grand on a barley holiday. So yeah. maybe they can afford the thousand dollar bike. Yeah. Not everyone. No. But, but no. I think there is a bit more uh, expendable income yeah. for those, you know, who are, are fortunate enough to still be employed. We're, we're obviously, yeah. And a lot of people are quite fortunate in Australia and yeah, people aren't, aren't traveling and things like that. So there's, there's uh, bikes are a kind of nice way to invest that bit of spare cash flow. <laughs> yeah. 
Let's talk about forecasting. So, I mean, obviously we're such long lead times at the moment and sales, I'm guessing just forever, uh, forever surprising you, I'd say. How do you go about forecasting for a product? How do you go about knowing how many units to order of, of you know, a gravel bike or of a, of a new full suspension mountain bike that's, that hasn't even hit the market yet? Uh, it's not like you can really go off of previous numbers here. Am I right? Yeah, well, fortunately for me, I, I put that responsibility on someone else. Okay. <laughs> well, yeah, so the, the actual forecasting for Australia and US markets, which is obviously where we're focused, uh, is done by some, some of my colleagues. However, you know, we're all involved in, in discussions, uh, particularly when we are developing a new model. The Australian market, we, we do have quite a bit of sales history and, and we, we're pretty comfortable with, with seasonality and things like that. Except, of course, in 2020, seasonality was flipped on its head that winter was, was huge for us, uh, whereas normally it is a bit slower. In the US, things are, are all pretty new to us still. and the seasonality is up continually. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, I mean, things do obviously quieten down in North American market during winter for, for bike sales, um, and they did ever so slightly for us. Okay. But really, you know, we've just hit spring and, and things are soaring. So there is obviously a risk of, of going too deep, yeah. particularly with R&D bikes and things like that, or... I guess, you know, when we consider road bikes, we, we're working on well, pretty, pretty ready with some, some new nice carbon road bike models that we have mm. that we've been developing. And, and those bikes, we haven't been selling well in the US historically because we haven't had them. Yeah. And so we don't want to get stuck with a whole bunch of high-end stock, obviously. So if anything, you know, we can be conservative. You know, a, a businesses don't, really go under from being somewhat conservative but they they can go under from from drowning in stock yeah it's so true. yeah it's it's a challenge there's a bit of crystal ball work um and yeah a lot of a lot of analysis of of seasonality and things okay. like that i mean even even when it comes to kids bikes yeah you know they're they're probably one of the most seasonally affected mm -hmm. products particularly yep. in australia yeah we see that really kids bikes sell in in spring through to before christmas yeah after that you can you may as well not have them right <laughs> so however last year we saw a huge spike in in kids bikes and everything during the the you know initial covid boom from you know march april so yeah uh whereas in the u.s that seasonality is a bit different there's a lot of a lot of growth through through the north american summer so yeah balancing those things on supply is is definitely uh a bit of a challenge yeah okay so it's not like you're just ordering as many group sets as you possibly can that that shimano allows you to it's you are still kind of you know going off of trying to go off of forecasted figures and, and trying to be conservative in what you're what you're planning to and what you're committing to for a year from now well for the riskier models yeah particularly new models that you know are kind of unknown unknown demand uh and the higher end things so they're going to tie up a lot of cash flow but for the bread and butter we are going pretty deep on right on yeah making sure that 
that stuff's coming in. Uh, okay. Yeah. So in, in those lower end models, it's an, then it is a case of we'll take whatever you can give us from from your component man, uh, from your compo- component suppliers. Yeah. So interesting. It's not necessarily the lower end um, in the US because we we sell online, and so shipping cost of of each bike is you know it's a, it costs the same for us to ship a four thousand dollar bike as it does to ship a four hundred dollar bike, and so uh, the lower end side. Uh, the sales can only be so strong when you, you you're shipping it online, and so it's actually it's that mid range of of product where you know we're particularly strong, mm. and as I already mentioned, you know the you know dual suspension mountain bike aluminium, uh, sort of the price mid range conscious product. enthusiast I guess is is yeah where you sure. guys are really strong yeah yeah and so for for that kind of market yeah we we can't get enough. Interesting. But, okay. Yeah, so we're we're going pretty hard on those. Okay. All right. Uh, so all so far, all I've really asked you about is is from the the manufacturing end of things and the the supply there. But what about logistics? So I mean, obviously, once the bike's assembled, then you've still got to get it in a box and get it across the world to to where the the consumer is. Like, we're constantly hearing about delays associated with that, right? We've got uh, constantly hearing about bikes sitting on the ocean somewhere that they can't land in a port because the ports are too full or whatever it is. What has been your experience there? Yeah, so it's logistic challenges all the way through. So uh, one is, is getting the supply of the, the parts and or, you know, from raw materials, everything. And so then that is obviously part of the delay of you know, production of the components. And so then once you've got an assembled bike, actually finding a container that you can put those bikes in is a challenge. In the US, we're landing probably three to five containers each week. And how many, how many bikes are in a container? It depends on the size of the bike, but like a 40 foot high cube will, will fit kind of 250 to 300 bikes or okay. so. Yep. Um, obviously, more if it's kids' bikes, just smaller boxes. So, those uh, getting the containers into ports is, is a, a real challenge. So, actually, well, getting the container to the factory finding a shipping line that can fit it on there you know if if only we could quickly get a few containers from australia over to china because australia ports are just full of containers that are empty that are waiting to go back to china or indonesia or whatnot so yeah that that's a challenge and so what what that means is we've seen a lot of increase in cost from the shipping side and you know it's a simple supply and demand thing and then there's also a lot of time because there's there's a delay getting them in a container and then there's a lot of port congestion as you'd mentioned so we see that in the US and Australia and so yeah basically container costs have doubled and the times doubled right so, so it's is that directly impacting the the end price on a bike or is that something that's being absorbed at this point the, there's a lot of factors that play in pricing of a bike and so we do our best to ensure that we're we're getting a good value bike to the, the customer. That's, I guess, one of the, the core brand uh, values of Polygon and through Bikes Online. Uh, and a lot of that value is because it's a factory brand, so they control all these things. We're selling online. And so we don't want to hike the prices up. However, a, a lot of the, the brands we're competing with are in the same boat. Yeah, There's the other aspect, which is actually the the raw cost of these components or frames and, and whatnot is also going up. 
and there's a supply and demand side there, but simply material cost is going up. Everything that we're assembling in Indonesia, if, if the component's not made there, well, it's got to get shipped there as well. Mm-hmm. So we've kind of got a double side of shipping as well there. So yeah, there's, there's a bit of a, a juggle and, and I think that generally the industry is going to see the prices going up yeah. a bit, but shipping a bike by sea is particularly for you know, mid to high end bikes is, is not a huge portion of, of the actual total cost. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we're, and we're obviously trying to balance that out between so it doesn't impact the low end bikes as, as much and absorb that a bit more in the high end bikes. Yeah. So a year ago, how long would it have taken you to, once a bike was uh, ready to go from the manufacturer, how long would it have taken you to say it landed in Australia? It depends where it's coming from. So okay. we do assemble some bikes in China as well. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, it, it depends, but it's normally around a month. Okay. Also. Yeah. And so, yeah, we were seeing containers, you know, taking a long time to get to the factory. So, you know, we, we may, miss two or three shipping bookings and then so that could add a couple of weeks on at one end and then at our end in australia leading up to you know through spring into summer last year you know we had two to three weeks delay just getting in and out of sydney port right okay okay so it's at least like just the shipping side of things is at least double than what it what it used to be i guess in in that sense um, and that's assuming things go smoothly at the moment. Yeah, right. Okay, that's uh, a lot of uh, a lot of insight into to why bikes aren't on floors at the moment. But uh, what I'm keen to, I guess, end with is just uh, you spoke about having a crystal ball before. Hmm. I'm, I'm keen for you to put that back to use again. Um, how long do you think these industry supply issues are going to last? Yeah, I think it's. It's hard to predict. I, I just checked the crystal ball again. It didn't didn't give me the answer. So I think it it'll probably vary on different levels of bikes. When when there's bikes with with group sets or you know components that there's there's reasonable supply in, then you know I think that we will see some some portions of of the market, certain categories, getting a bit flooded. And so if people have have gone a bit too deep, then you know there may be a bit of a clearance side of things and i think with a lot of other bikes if it's on if it's 20 months or so of of lead time well you know by the time you're seeing those bikes actually on the floor and selling through then it's it's definitely more than a couple of years away all right okay so yeah obviously there's yeah everyone's been placing orders you know in the past 12 months to to try cover that somewhat but yeah, it's going to be pretty interesting. Not every brand's going to have, have got the right formula to make sure they've got supply. Interesting. Okay. Would you agree that we're going to see a number of smaller brands disappear? Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't wish it on anyone, but I think that certain, like a lot of businesses are going to have their challenges. Um, and so whether that's you know, not mirroring the growth you had in 2020 or if it's, if it's really... Uh, you know, depending on your distribution model, if you've got retailers who are totally dependent on your bikes in stock, you know, selling a certain number each month to pay their pay their rent and their wages, then it's going to be a, a challenge. And so, if that shop needs to look for a different brand that certain you know does have supply, then it's going to be hard to get back in there if if you're a bike brand. Um, 
obviously some shops are going to struggle to get supply of any bikes. So I think that's going to be a bit of a challenge, um, even for ourselves. I think there's a lot of challenges. You know, we, as I said, we have a lot of strength in, you know, mid-end dual suspension mountain bike side of things. And if, if we can't get forks, you, you can't sell a dual suspension mountain bike with a rigid fork, right? No. So um, it's not going to yeah, go so a, well. A big challenge. So, yeah. It's, it's, what if you market it as a gravel bike? <laughs> a long, rigid travel gravel bike yeah well you know i was thinking should be pretty cheap to to you know just make a soft ride <laughs> i assume their patents expired now right you'd hope so <laughs> you'd hope so all right oh dave thank you very much for the insights uh the knowledge is incredible um but yeah thank you for the time it's been a pleasure okay dave well dave had quite a lot to say there. Uh, a lot of it was pretty heavy. Uh, what would you say was the general tone of what he laid out there? Would you say he was optimistic or pessimistic? A little bit of both. I think there's, there's some obvious optimism there speaking with him. I mean, he's, he's absolutely seeing this, this new generation of cycling take off as a result of this boom. But obviously, he, there's some frustration there that I guess we're not really able to capitalize on that boom because of these stock situations. So yeah, a little bit of both. So one thing that is very plainly clear is that, you know, I'm not sure how many people understood before listening to that interview that you did with Dave, how long the, the lead times are even in a normal year for, for standard bike production. I mean, when you are looking at a bike on a showroom floor right now, the reality is that bike was finalized, you know, maybe two years ago, and the final spec for that bike was finalized maybe like a year ago or so. So there's there's a very, very long delay between when a bike is actually available for sale on the floor and when someone signed off on when that bike was done. Um, and, and again, in a normal year, that, that lead time is long enough. And now he's talking about lead times of like two years, which is insane, because one thing that you kept bringing up was this idea of a crystal ball and not just in terms of forecasting, which is some sort of black art in and of itself that I will never understand and definitely will never be good at, but we, we've seen companies, you know, even really big ones get it wrong as far as where they think trends are, you know, trends and customer preferences are going to be. And again, that's, that is for bikes that are, you know, let's say one to two years out. Uh, as far as, you know, how long it takes for the development process and spec and all that. And now Dave Musgrove is saying that, you know, even just for ordering components, you're looking at, you know, at best a year lead time and more like two in some cases. And in that case, he, he said he's actually now in some cases having to, instead of design bikes that he thinks that he, you know, that he wants to design, that he thinks people are going to use, he now has to base a lot of those decisions based on just what components he can get. Yeah. That seems just, I, I mean, I, I don't know what sort of long-term ramifications that is going to have, but, you know, even just assuming that availability gets better in the next year or two, it seems like just from a development standpoint that we're potentially going to be kind of hitting sort of like this plateau yeah. Yeah. It's, it sounds like from what he was kind of saying is like, they're almost treading water in terms of innovating products because they're just, you know, what they have now is, is, uh, I guess a known quantity and they know how to make it and they know how to source parts for it. And 
uh, that's just, you know, the best way to do business at this point in time. Uh, so yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure how much other brands are going through the same thing, but you know, everyone else, I guess, is in, in the same boat as far as parts availability. So I'm sure, I'm sure what Dave's saying, he's uh, not at all alone in it. Yeah. I mean, another thing that he mentioned was, um, like for a lot of the other ancillary components, like, you know, saddles, handlebars, that sort of thing. I mean, there, there was a time, um, when even a company like SRAM was quoting, you know, 30 to 45 day lead times. And he was saying that for mm. quite a while, he was essentially operating on a just in time sort of schedule, um, which yep. is certainly great for lean manufacturing. You don't have to tie up a whole lot of money for very long periods of time, that sort of thing. Um, but one consequence that we're seeing now with these super long lead times is how companies, or I guess bigger companies and bigger brands that have the financial clout and have the volume to basically just sort of call the shots and you know push their way to the front of the line for a lot of these suppliers and uh, factories and manufacturers, they are essentially going to be pushing out a lot of the smaller brands. Mm -hmm. Um, like, I, I don't know about you, but I know I've heard of some bigger brands who, you know, who in, in effect are not just doing this so that they can maintain their own supply schedules, but they are, you know, some of them anyway, are actually looking at this as a means of, you know, competitively snuffing out smaller brands entirely. Um, yeah. which, which seems incredibly cruel and predatory, but in sort of the dog eat dog world of international bike business, you know, I suppose if you have the ability and you have the financial health to just completely erase a smaller brand that may or may not be, you know, a big headache in terms of your sales and co competition, that sort of thing. I mean, it sounds like a lot of brands are, are actually taking that opportunity to do so, which just seems kind of yucky. Yeah. The other thing that uh, Dave Dave actually mentioned uh, once we stopped recording was that uh, yeah those smaller brands I mean they may be snuffed out by 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 these larger companies taking their production um, taking their I guess their spot in the queue for production but the other thing is is um, Dave was saying a lot of these smaller brands are required to put down like a 30 percent deposit for their order uh, you know upfront so that 30% deposit, you know, for, for a container of bikes might not be something they can afford or have cash flow for to just have sitting there unused for 18 months while they wait for their stock. So, I mean, that's, that in itself is a massive barrier for some of these smaller brands. Yeah. I mean, I remember, you know, kind of back when I was racing cyclocross quite a lot, one of my favorite smaller brands, um, was Van Dessel, uh, was run by this person I've known for a while, Edwin Bull. And even back then in very normal times, um, you know, he used to describe to me the struggles that he had as a smaller brand in, a, in effect that, you know, he could sell enough bikes to, you know, get enough money to place another order with his, with his factory and, you know, kind of keep things going in that sense. But in order to really grow, I mean, he was, he, he said he was like kind of perpetually caught in this kind of purgatory of not being able to be big enough to really grow a lot and like really place these big orders, but not being small enough to be seen as sort of like a small niche player. So he was just like yeah. really in this weird, weird in-between spot. And, and unfortunately, I mean, you know, Van Dessel is still around, but you know, they've had to make some financial decisions that I don't know has been very good for the company. And now given the current environment, I feel like we're going to be seeing a lot more of those sort of situations moving forward. And, you know, that sort of business path is if anything is going to be amplified and accelerated for a lot more brands. And, you know, I, I'm, 
I'm honestly a little bit scared to see what happens to a lot of these smaller brands that people honestly have a lot of a cult, you know, a bit of a cult following behind it, you know, big fan base. Yeah, I think, yeah, part of me thinks that maybe this is the industry writing itself as well, because arguably in some categories of cycling, it's, it's an oversaturated market with perhaps too much choice. Um, but at the same time, yeah, I definitely feel bad for those people that have, you know, dedicated their lives to, uh, to, you know, to making these small businesses happen. And, and this might be, this might be the last straw. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's nuts. I mean, you know, I know this is something that you have noticed, um, from, from our end of things. I mean, usually it's not that big of a deal to get a test bike in on loan for, for a review or whatever. Um, but now it's been certainly extremely difficult in some cases impossible. Um, you know, and, and I'm actually in the process of dealing with several, you know, smaller, but I would say like not necessarily tiny brands. Um, like, you know, a lot of people will have heard of wolf tooth, uh, wolf tooth components, for example, and they have a sister frame brand called Atso and, you know, they don't make very many bikes, but the ones that they do are, I mean, they, they're pretty nice. And I have one of their carbon gravel bikes that is slated to, uh, be delivered for review sometime, I think probably next month or so. And the reason for that delay is because they cannot get Shimano GRX gravel components. And then similarly, um, you know, Lightspeed, you know, sort of that iconic American titanium brand. Um, I have a gravel bike inbound from them uh, that has been in the works for, I don't know, a couple months now, I think maybe. And, you know, again, that's, that's another company that you would think, you know, normally wouldn't have too much of an issue just getting a regular off the shelf group set. Uh, in this case, I yep. think they're building up my test bike with Campagnolo Eckhar and they, they couldn't get a lot of stuff and they had a hard time getting what they could get. So it's, it's pretty remarkable what is out there and what's not out there. I mean, no one has anything. Yeah. yeah to, to rewind a bit, uh, we're talking about the stifling of innovation based on these, these supply issues. Something Dave was telling me is that he, you know, they're working on, they're constantly working on prototypes and new ideas and, and they can make the frames to, to test, but he can't get a group set to then build up the bike to test these things. So it's kind of just in this, like this weird place where they, they want to test these frames in the real world and, you know, find out whether the, the geometry and all that is, is going to be a, something they want to move ahead on, but he can't build the bike up at the moment. So that's just, that's just unbelievable. Yeah, it, it is amazing when, you know, the brand manager or product manager for for a pretty sizable brand cannot get parts in order to test prototypes or develop development meals that they want to test, um, which is astounding because you would think that, you know, OEM component manufacturers, I think, are still highly motivated to get these people on their stuff, if only to be considered for future OEM spec. And when these companies can't even provide parts to these people who I would think from, from a component manufacturer's perspective should almost be at the very, very top of the food chain, then that's a strong indicator that things are not great. I, I guess to, to wrap things up, you know, in, in case you missed it for, for people who are, listening, who are listening to that interview, how long did Dave say that he thought it was going to take before things kind of normalized again? Uh, I mean, that was, that was a little bit vague, should I say, um, perhaps his crystal ball was cracked on that day, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's probably two years, uh, 
plus because you know at the moment they're they're putting in their production orders for for two years from now um just purely to ensure that they can actually get the stocks i mean you're probably looking at least until 2024 until things settle um the the other view the pessimist pessimistic view is that perhaps this boom in cycling will end sooner than that and there'll be a surplus of product available by then well this is certainly a subject that we are going to be talking about and covering quite a bit uh, in the weeks and months ahead. And I actually have a conversation set up with my secret industry source. Mm. Uh, because is it me? No, Dave. It is not you. And as far okay, and as far good. as I know, actually, his first name is not Dave at all. Now that I think about it. Oh. Um, oh so it's not Dave Musgrove. Either. No, no, it's not not you or Dave oh, Musgrove. Okay. But all right. But okay. uh, well, that's two that we've ruled out. But I I would say that this person has a. You know, I don't want to say much more pessimistic view on how things are going to be, but um, I guess I will say that uh, it sounds like they have a much more cynical view of how things are going to shake out. And unfortunately, in my experience, that view is probably going to be reflected in reality. So uh, hopefully we can get that up on the site sooner than later, but stay tuned for a future Secret Industry Insider column that is probably going to prompt you to hold on to your current bike at the very least until you have physically taken delivery of your new bike. Because I would say if you are thinking about getting a new bike or have been thinking about getting a new one, by all means, do not sell your old bike until you have that new one in hand. Because I do have friends who have done that, assuming that they'd be able to get a new bike and they are currently bikeless for the foreseeable future. So... And, and running running's not very fun no no i think it's I, not as fun as cycling I, I think most people who are listening to this can agree that well yeah i would say that most people who who are listening to this podcast right now would agree that they would prefer cycling rather than running so yeah on that note Hold on, to that bike. on that note we will wish you well and say goodbye for this week's episode of nerd alert thanks for listening to the deep dive week for nerd alert uh, and once again, we are on a weekly schedule now. Next week's show will be the standard group discussion with myself, Dave, Kaylee, and Zach Edwards, pro mechanic for the Boulder Groupetto. Uh, and you know, we'll be discussing as usual, kind of like latest developments in tech news, and uh, and then we'll have a, we'll have another round of Ask a Mechanic, and we are for sure going to be introducing as a semi permanent segment. I think we're I think we're deciding to call it the Hammer. Is that is that what we've settled on? basically uh, i don't know basically we're yeah, going to recount yeah basically we're going to recount kaylee's uh most you know i guess bodgiest repairs over the years most of which will have involved a hammer and most of us most of which will have involved someone else fixing his mistakes later so stay tuned for that in the meantime thanks as always for listening if you liked what you heard please make sure you subscribe so you don't miss another episode please tell your friends about nerd alert and if you haven't done so already please leave us a rating or a review on iTunes because all that stuff helps more people find and listen to Nerd Alert. So with that, we will see you next week. Cheers. Cheers.